You're listening to a press conference from the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health with Michael Minna, Assistant Professor of Epidemiology and a faculty member in the Center for Communicable Disease Dynamics. This call was recorded at 1 p.m. Eastern Time on Friday, March 19th. Well, I just wanted to to take a moment um, for those of you who uh, care, I suppose. Um, uh, there was a lot of uh, a lot of uh, movement this week, just a, a ton, really, in terms of announcements from Biden's administration, announcements from the CDC, and uh, and from the FDA, all centered around screening and and getting schools open and and re- repeat screening tests uh, using uh, ideally rapid tests. Um, so the just to walk through like what happened this week, uh, back at the beginning of the week, uh, it's, it feels like weeks ago at this point. Um, uh, uh, the FDA announced new uh, a new template and rubric that will uh, provide them with uh, that provides manufacturers of tests uh, a new way to get an EUA for screening. Uh, I think it's a huge it's a huge step in the right direction. It at the very least suggests that that the FDA is recognizing the the utility and the the benefit of of speed of testing and frequency of testing, and they're they're creating uh, essentially a pathway to get to go from an EUA uh, authorized test that is for symptomatic use only and not require those tests to be used off label anymore, but to actually give an opportunity for companies to get a, a, a screening claim. And so that's a big, that's a big um, sort of decision from the FDA to formally be supporting screening. Um, I think it, it still is, uh, there's still a little bit more work to do in terms of, you know, declaring screening tests as not medical diagnostic tests that require prescriptions. Uh, that hasn't happened yet. Oddly, now still a screening test will still require a prescription. Uh, but nevertheless, I think it was a, a show of, of interest. Um, then the Biden administration, of course, announced $12 billion towards testing to expand testing, uh, specifically rapid testing, as well as a hub and spoke model of PCR labs for opening K through eight uh, schools. Um, and so, you know, that, that kind of came the day after, I think, the FDA's decision to put the template out was probably uh, recognizing that the Biden administration was going to be formally uh, recommending screening the next day. And then on the same time, the CDC released new guidance, finally, and, and really, uh, I know Rochelle Walensky, uh, I'm guessing, you know, really worked very hard uh, to get the CDC to write very well-crafted guidance about screening tests and the use of them in our communities and our populations. This is the first time that the CDC has really suggested frequent uh, testing as a way to mitigate spread and has given states guidance. So I'm really hoping that all of this combined, uh, you have this $12 billion that's going to be distributed to states. Very quickly, states are going to say, this is great. What do we do with it? And then along with it came CDC guidance to help guide the states. There's gonna be lots of questions that states will have. There's still gonna be problems with access to tests uh, because uh, they still aren't uh, authorized uh, for the most part. But this is all really um, good news that I think is at least helping us stay on the coattails of our peer nations. Many countries have moved forward already with uh, getting these types of tests out all over the place. and. Um, uh, I think that the U.S. is probably recognizing that there's a, a major benefit to this as well, and is trying to uh, is trying to to get caught up and and sort of stay relevant in this regard, especially in the context of mutations. 
Uh, and, you know, I think uh, by all metrics, mutations are increasingly worrying. And so uh, having other tools in our, in our pocket to be able to uh, mitigate spread if and when that's needed, if vaccines aren't doing all that they're, that we're hoping that they will, uh, this is going to be increasingly helpful. Um, I'll stop, I'll stop there and, uh, you know, I'll take questions about whatever you guys want to ask about. Thank you, Dr. Minna. Um, first question. Hey, Dr. Minna, the word of the week seems to have been plateau. Um, the number of cases in many states, including here in Massachusetts, was on the decline for several weeks, but over the past few weeks, we've seen just kind of a leveling off. Do you have any idea what's driving this plateau and how concerned are you about it? Well, there's, um, uh, I mean, I, I want cases to be at zero, you know, and I think we have tools to, to help get us there. Um, so I'm concerned about it. Uh, I think that, you know, is it the variants that are driving the plateau or is it just we're like kind of hitting, uh, we, we had this period of very high transmissibility, you know, the seasonality is, is a real thing with this virus. And, uh, and then seasonal forcing comes down and we hit a new equilibrium uh, you know, and so that's part of this. I think part of it is certainly potentially variants and that's, uh, you know, but, but a variant, we have to look at what's the, like when we, when we just throw out that word, like, oh, this is because of variants. Why, why is that? It's because uh, at least B117, for example, can transmit with a higher effective R value for every one person or for every hundred people that get infected in a certain context, you know, instead of infecting 130, maybe it infects 160. What that means is that even if things, if things are coming down, uh, if B117 is coming up a bit, we're going to see that sort of could potentially push and keep R more around one or just above one rather than just below one. And that difference when you're edging, skirting the edge of R being one is the difference between exponential growth and exponential decay unfortunately. And so uh, this plateau around R, R of one is, um, which by definition is a plateau, um, you know, it is certainly concerning. It's really difficult at this point to parse it out and say, oh, this is because of uh, seasonality, or this is because of increased uh, people mingling together and increased transmission uh, or mutants. It's probably a little bit of all of them, to be honest. Uh, but it does beg the question, you know, was, uh, I think that the questions will be asked, of course, you know, um, uh, are we accelerating, uh, you know, vaccines are, are here, a lot of, a lot of the vulnerable people in our communities are now vaccinated. I mean, that's been by any metric, a scientific miracle. I mean, it's just been amazing. Uh, and that has led the pendulum to, to swing, to say, okay, we can open up, you know, you made, made regulations that around nursing homes, if you're vaccinated, you can uh, mingle, you know, th there's all kinds of, you know, every state is opening up uh, at an accelerated pace right now. And that does, that does have its consequences, as we all know, we can't go from staying very vigilant to not being vigilant and assume that that's going to not have some impact. So it could also be just human behavior. Quick follow-up to that, you mentioned the accelerated pace of states reopening, but at the same time, Europe is closing down. New lockdowns announced today in France, Germany thinking about the same thing. Is it just a question of timing from one continent to the other? 
um, you know, we could find ourselves there as well. Um, uh, I think that what we're seeing in Europe is uh, is certainly partly due to high, more highly transmissible variants, like disrupting the balance in the equilibrium that they were finding. Um, and, uh, you know, there are differences. The U.S. is more aggressive about getting everyone vaccinated than the whole of Europe. I mean, Israel obviously is the leader in, in this regard, but um, uh, we bought a lot of vaccines. We just got a ton of them. And uh, ideally, we'll give our extras to the rest of the world. Um, uh, but we are pushing forward with that. And that, that is helping, I'm sure. Uh, uh, but Europe... You know, I, I think that we should look at that as a little bit of foreshadowing or forewarning rather um, that, hey, we're not out of the woods yet. Um, we might want to be, um, but I don't think we are. I think we're going to see massive difference, massive benefits from vaccines, uh, but it doesn't mean cases won't arise. Like when we look at BO351 and we look at the vaccine or the, the, the protection uh, in elderly from a natural infection, we're seeing uh, people over 65 are getting re-exposed at much higher rates than people under 65, which isn't surprising. We know that immunity starts to wane at around 65, which is why people get shingles. Um, and, uh, and so I think we have to be very, very vigilant. You know, this is not, I, I, I understand that everyone is extremely tired. I'm exhausted. Everyone in the world is exhausted by this virus, but, um, we have to, I think we have to really be careful when we swing the pendulum out because everyone's vaccinated that we don't end up causing ourselves to close down. My personal feeling is we'll probably end up locking down again. This, uh, not as significantly, but this fall, I think we will probably struggle again. Thank you very much, doctor. Appreciate it. Uh, next question. Hi, um, I wanted to go back to the uh, testing and um, the, the rapid antigen testing. Um, where, what is the state of how states or communities or businesses know which one to use? I mean, there just seem to be a lot out there. Um, and I remember a while ago, you had described something that came in the mail that was like a double packet like two tests so that one would confirm or, you know, um, serve as a backup uh, to the other if you got a certain result. Could mm -hmm. you just go over what, you know, what the state of play is with the uh, antigen testing and how it's best used and um, how frequently? Absolutely. Well, I, you know, I wish that I could um, agree with you that there were a lot. I think the, the, the word, the, the names, there's a lot of names in the space, but actually, from the real rapid antigen test perspective, the simple ones, there's, all, there's a very limited choice still. Um, there's Binex now, and there's, uh, uh, I don't have it here, there's Quidel. Those are the main two that you can actually get into the home, still again with a prescription. Uh, and so that really brings the cost up from like, you know, these things cost something like 70 cents to make and they're being sold for $30 or $25 because of their prescription. It's a major barrier. There's no reason to have a prescription. And then the other one is Access Bio. Those are the three that are in this form factor. Uh, none of the others have been authorized yet. Um, there were two that also required instruments. And those have been around for a while, the BD Veritor and the so Quidel Sophia. Those are like instrumented things that you'd only see 
um, a doctor using or some sort of uh, official uh, point of care instrument. Um, but when it comes to these really simple ones, there's only, there's unfortunately only three. There's a lot of them that work really well and I've evaluated them. Uh, unfortunately, they uh, haven't been able to um, get through the, the FDA regulatory process. Um, and so they're not available to Americans right now. Um, we're running a big study with one of them with Citibank uh, and that's the Innova test, but that's not available. It's only through, because we're doing this in a ethically uh, approved study uh, that, that we're running it. Um, that all said, you know, so we do have, we're seeing the Binex now available. We're gonna see major investments in Binex now in Quidel, I'm sure, especially in light of the 12 billion. My guess is tons of money is gonna get thrown towards Quidel and Abbott. Uh, uh, as a result, because they're the only two really that are that are scalable that are around, um, uh, they're not necessarily the best. Uh, you know, I think some of them Abbott's the best, and I would say that some of them are, are better than than the Quidel that aren't yet approved. Uh, the best way to use these is to really bank on the fact that they are rapid. And so you asked about like, what about having two packaged together? There have been a lot of concerns early on about false positives, and so that made me talk a lot about, hey, you know, you could confirm a, a positive with a second rapid test. So let's say you're using a Binex now at your home and you get positive on this, then you can, you know, use another rapid test right away. You, you package 10 of these with one of these or whatever it might be. So that if you're positive on one of these, you take this and your false positive rate plummets. That being said, many of these are already showing exceedingly low false positive rates. They've gotten a lot better. The BD Veritor and the Quidel Sophia had high false positive rates, those instrumented ones. But now this ANOVA test and, and the Access Bio test, they're extremely specific, um, you know, less than 0.01% false positive rate. So as, as specific as PCR. Uh, so in some ways, you, you don't even necessarily need the second test uh, uh, because you're not going to get a lot of false positives. Um, they're best used uh, frequently. Uh, they are only going to be positive when you're when you're infectious. So, uh, but PCR is only you know both both PCR and and rapid tests. If your goal is to stop transmission, frequency is the key. If you're not doing it frequently, then you start transmitting and you don't even know it yet. And because these are so inexpensive when they're not prescription, and because they're so they're able to be produced at tens of millions per day. If we had all the companies that could make them making them, uh, we could create policy and strategy around them. We could say, hey, you want to open your schools? Um, we know that kids are going to go and you know go and hang out. We know that they're not great at wearing masks, et cetera, et cetera. We know that they're not getting vaccines. But what we can do is have them spend 30 seconds each morning and take a test. Super simple. Um, that's the nice, that's the beauty of tests. Every other strategy we have is very consuming. Uh, distancing is a very, uh, it, it disrupts life. Wearing a mask is an all day process. Uh, all of these things, shutting down is horribly disruptive. Taking a test is so, I, I think of it as like a biomask. It, it's really not disruptive, but it's, it's 30 seconds in the morning and it greatly reduces the chances that you're spreading that day. It, it just makes too much sense not to be using it right now. And other countries, are now really getting uh, pushing forward with frequent testing. The CDC and the Biden administration really want to. That's become apparent. Uh, and so I'm, I'm hoping that they will have the tools available to them 
uh, you know, that these tools will get authorized and get through the FDA soon so that the Biden administration and the CDC can actually create strategy. Right now, they're kind of having to contort their strategy to create more PCR testing because we don't have the, the rapid tests. Um, but I think we should probably start seeing them, I hope, you know, eventually, because they're working very, very well. Um, and just follow, so that currently like what the White House uses or use, that that's an antigen test. Like when you say rapid 15 minutes, the what exists now are antigen as opposed to like a fast PCR. Well, uh, the Trump administration, yeah, so the Trump administration was using the Abbott ID now. Uh, and that was, that's a fast molecular RNA test. It, it's the one that was a, a box. And, and then this is an antigen. But then you have uh, these new tests uh, like this looks kind of like an antigen. It's got a paper strip there, but this is a molecular rapid test, uh, a rapid molecular RNA test. So we're starting to see the lines blur as, you know, a year ago, I would not have thought that this kind of thing was going to become available in a year. Um, but I did know that rapid antigen tests would be. So now we're actually starting to see rapid molecular tests become available, and that's going to also create a whole new, uh, a whole new um, approach to rapid testing uh, that that could potentially sort of supplant the need for PCR. You'd get the sensitivity of PCR, but the speed of a, a rapid test. So the the lines are getting blurred. But but to be clear. Um, at the moment, the only ones that are authorized are really the, the, anti, the, the, the two antigen uh, are the ones without any instrument. Okay, great. Uh, next question. Hi, thanks uh, for doing this call. And this is kind of a follow-up on just what you're speaking about testing in schools. What kinds of policy decisions would you like to be to see implemented. I mean, you have schools dealing with things like CLIA waivers when they're trying to do testing, and it seems like schools are all over the map on this right now. Um, but no, there are really no policies for at-home testing for students, staff, and teachers. And you know, as the CDC and potentially the FDA work through these things, what, what would you like to see? Well, I would really like to see in terms of, uh, in terms of screening, you know, um, there are so many ways to do frequent screening to keep our schools and businesses and offices safe. The reason why we're doing this study with Citibank uh, is because Citibank looked at the landscape of what was available to them and they said, how the heck are we going to open up all of our branches? Um, you know, with, with uh, we, we can't get a, a PCR test every day. And, and besides, even if we get a PCR test, if it takes two days to return, it's practically useless to stop transmission. And that's unfortunately true. Um, so they looked around and said, what other options do we have? And they also said, it's really onerous for us to have to have employees line up when they get to work every day uh, and take a test. And so, uh, so we started this uh, at-home based program with LivePerson. LivePerson is a company that makes software uh, for chatting. Like if you go into a bank, uh, a bank website, and it says, can I help you? And you can chat into it or talk to it. Um, that's this company, LivePerson. And so we collaborated with LivePerson and, and City to really bring this program forward. Uh, 
by saying, hey, look, you know, it is possible to actually ask people to do their test at home, distribute the labor, distribute the effort, and do it at home three times a week, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And if you have any issues at all, you have live person there to talk to. It's an AI-based app, but it also connects straight to humans if you need any help. Uh, and so, you know, bringing these technologies together has made reporting, you know, if we we're not reporting in the study because it's a study with a non-EUA authorized test, we're doing PCR still for the confirmatory testing, um, but it could enable reporting. It could enable sort of at-home use very simply, very effectively, and that's exactly what it's doing. What I would like to see is that transition to schools. Is there a reason that schools, that all the effort has to be on the schools, or could we ask schools to um, have most of their parents, you know, do the test for their kids or most of the tests be done at home. Again, you brush your teeth and right afterwards you do a COVID test and it could take, it really doesn't take long. Once you do it once or twice, it is extremely simple after that. Um, so 30 seconds at home uh, and then you wait 10 minutes, you know, while you're eating breakfast or whatever and you have your result and then you go to school. Uh, that's what I would like to see. And we could do that every few days, even twice a week would be enough to stop spread, uh, to stop future outbreaks from happening that would otherwise paralyze a school or cause a school to have to shut down. We just have to keep R below one in each of those environments. What that means is these tests don't have to be perfect. We just have to make sure that if a case does get in, that it doesn't continue to spread and, and cause the school or the business to have to close down. And to do that, all you have to do, if you had, you know, at a big scale, if you had 100 people getting infected, you just have to get those 100 to infect 90. If you can get 100 people to just infect 90, that sounds to most of us like a failure, but that alone stops an outbreak from taking off. It keeps it in the exponential decay. So if you start to get an outbreak, it immediately burns itself out. That's all we have to do with these tests. We just have to make sure that we're keeping R below one. The moment R gets above one, which it can do very well if we don't have sort of a frequent testing program, uh, then things can get out of control very quickly and you're closing down your schools, you're closing down your businesses like we're seeing in Europe again. Uh, so what I would like to see is America take a proactive stance here and say, we are going to use tests you know, every couple of days and we are going to use them in a way that keeps R below one, even when outbreaks do start to emerge again, even with surges in cases, this environment here will, will keep R below one and we can keep businesses moving forward and schools moving forward. Uh, so that's what I would really like to see. If that answered the question. It does, I, and just to follow, schools are, you know, uh, a, a lot of chefs in the kitchen with school boards and teachers unions and everything else. How does that, how does that complicate practical implementation? Well, it's part of the reason that I would like to see the testing be done at, at home. Uh, you know, and maybe, maybe we have to work to confirm, like there's ways, each of these tests has QR codes on them. So there's ways to actually, you know, ensure that people are using the tests, um, there's a philosophy around sort of what your goals are. And I think the goal should be not stopping every single case, but stopping every outbreak. That should have been our goal all along. And if we had that goal, we would have stopped the outbreaks. We would have got these tests out a long time ago. Um, uh, but our, our goals have been stop every case. And as a result, we haven't stopped any cases because we're trying to aim for perfection here um, in, a, in the wrong way. 
so I think, but having these complex organizations, school boards, you know, city administrators, parents, uh, it is very complex. And I think that each place would have to, to a certain extent, take it, uh, you know, they would have to deal with the local environment. But this is also why CDC can give very clear guidance, which they're trying to do now. Uh, the problem is even if C CDC wants to give really clear guidance, which they just did, there's just no tests available for the schools to really be able to purchase. They can get some of the Binex now, but Binex now and Quidel aren't gonna be able to cut it. They're not making enough. Um, and so what this means is that most schools don't have access to these tests and they're, they're, they need prescription and they need CLIA waivers. Like this should not be, at this point in the pandemic, nobody, no American, especially not school kids, should have to be prescribed a test by a physician and have extra cost added and complexity. We should just get rid of all that. You know, I would like the president to make a presidential order that says, that declares these tests as public health tools that don't require prescription. And that all of a sudden uh, takes a big burden off of the schools. Right now, the schools have to go and apply for CLIA waivers and find physicians to write their prescriptions. And, you know, it's a big mess. It makes it so hard. And so they're just saying, screw it, we don't want anything to do with this. Um, and uh, if we can make these much simpler and treat this as a public health crisis, which it continues to be, uh, I think we could find that the schools would have a lot more latitude to move forward. Thanks. Uh, next question. Hi, thanks for doing this. Um, I'm wondering, so, you know, we're seeing a lot of hesitancy out there. There's a Washington Post story today talking about that even among healthcare workers, like 40% hadn't been vaccinated yet. And of course that's gonna change over time. But I wonder like, what does, if we're not gonna get to herd immunity, which seems kind of likely at this point, what does that mean? I mean, what, how does society operate when a lot of people are vaccinated, but not everyone is vaccinated? You know, if, do we have to, um, if we do have, you know, flare ups and things like that, um, are vaccinated people going to go, you know, back and stay home and not work and, you know, not be able to go to restaurants? I mean, what, is, what does life look like in a, in a world where we have a lot of vaccinated people, but not enough vaccinated people? Um, well, there's a couple answers to that, I think. Uh, on the one hand, um, vaccines aren't all. We've actually had a lot of infections. You know, we've probably had probably something like 150 million people have probably been infected. Um, you know, the CDC suggests something like a five-fold, you know, overall that we've had a five-fold under reporting rate. We have 30 million people who have been reported as infected. So that brings us up to 100, you know, something uh, around 150 million people might have been infected at this point. Um, maybe it's a little less, maybe it's a little more. Uh, it's almost surely more than 100, because back in December, the estimate based on serologies and others from the CDC was, was 85 million or so. And we've had about a third or something of the cases have all happened since then. Um, so 120, 30 million. Uh, and that's really without even testing the kids so much. Um, so when we add that to vaccines, I think we are going to have a lot of protection. But regardless, to your point, there are going to be lots of people who aren't getting vaccinated. I do think that number is going to keep shrinking, though. 
Uh, and, you know, if we go back just two months ago, a lot of people were saying, I don't want one of those vaccines, they're dangerous. And then the people started seeing their neighbors and their friends, and this gets into a cycle, a, a positive cycle where you say, hey, you know, everyone around me has had a vaccine and, and they're all doing just fine. Uh, and we're going to keep seeing vaccines, uh, vaccine receipt and acceptance begets vaccine receipt and acceptance. And if it goes the other way, you know, like we're seeing with AstraZeneca now, where it's like a little bad news also tumbles into, you know, snowballs. Um, and, uh, and so I think we'll end up with a lot of people vaccinated. Do I think we'll get herd immunity? I think we have to be really careful. We've seen that, we've seen that uh, infection rates and the actual amount of uh, viral load rather uh, decreases post-vaccine. Not surprisingly, that is like uh, obvious. Like we didn't have to ask that question, but the question is, does it go to zero? And the, the answer appears no. Um, so I think uh, uh, assuming that people will remain infectious, we're gonna have to be in this for a little bit of a long haul where we're, we're essentially waiting for enough people to get protected um, through both infections and vaccines that even if transmission is occurring, we start to see that hospitalizations aren't ticking up. And that's where I think we really need to step back today. I've said this a number of times now over the last few months that we need to, to decide now. We need to start getting ourselves conditioned for the question of what happens in multiple scenarios. If we get to the fall or the summer and there's surges and there's hospitalizations and we start to see hospitalizations creep up to a point where that's not sustainable, okay, we shut down again. But if we see cases and no hospitalizations, are we going to be okay with that? Um, the populace is traumatized right now. And so uh, I think we have to really ask the question, are we okay with cases if it's not leading to hospitalizations? My, and I think the answer, if we actually sh showed that it's not leading to hospitalizations, should certainly be yes. It's a virus that maybe we can live with. But if we're seeing instead that it is, you know, that reinfections with variants are actually potentially worse, you know, whatever it might be, then, you know, we should have a plan for that too. And um, we have so far been reactive. And I think we have an opportunity, I'm hoping, but then again, I said it in April of last year, I said this exact same thing. Um, I, and that's that, you know, we're going to see cases come down. <laughs> we'll get a little bit of a reprieve from this virus, we'll probably see cases come up again in October, November. Um, and we can use this time right now in this lull of cases to say, how are we gonna react as a society? And we can start having our officials come out with, with, um, with uh, a, a game plan that says, if cases are coming out, we don't see hospitals tick up, then that is a fine thing. In some ways getting reinfected if, you're not, if it's not making you sick is a good thing. It boosts your immunity. Um, but if it is making you sick, that's a bad thing. And so we have to just be really cognizant. And I want to see uh, a real plan ahead of time uh, because it's going to be a societal decision. It's not a scientific one. Good. Thank you. Uh, next question. Um, hey, uh, Michael, just to change the subject a little bit, but I think it's important, interesting. Um, I asked you months ago about why the Spanish flu, um, which still circulates, is no longer, um, you know, so bad in terrorizing us. I think I remember your response. In fact, I know I do. But I just wanted to hear you elaborate on that a little bit more. I understand this veers way off topic, but if it happened once, it can happen again. 
whatever happened to that flu, which makes it no longer an issue. Do, do you mean... Um... Well, that was a flu that terrorized the world for two years, and now it still circulates, but it is no longer an issue. So the question is why? What happened? Oh. Well, that's so that's exactly what I think is going to happen with this. I mean, that well, first, the 1918 has changed. Uh, 1918 strain, uh, the PB1F2 protein, which is a protein on it that gives some pathogenicity, uh, isn't it's not the same strain anymore. Uh, uh, it's similar for sure, but it's not the exact same. And there's some reasons that people think that that's you know a benefit to the new strain isn't as lethal um, or pathogenic. Uh, but I think the same thing is going to happen here. We are going to age out of this virus. We're accelerating that process uh, because um, uh, through vaccines, we're, we're accelerating it very quickly. Um, and uh, But what I mean by aging out of it is uh, kids are not impacted badly by this virus. Uh, it doesn't mean that, you know, I know that there was a controversial piece in the Atlantic um, today uh, or yesterday, I'm not sure when, about kids and not getting vaccines and such. Um, but uh, it doesn't mean that kids shouldn't get vaccinated. It doesn't, you know, any of that. But it does, but kids are much more protected naturally from this virus. And uh, so as long as we can, and people after they've been exposed once or vaccinated uh, should have greater and greater protection. So as we start to see the population, either kids are getting exposed when they're really little, they're not getting disease, or you know, even 40-year-olds, you know, they're not getting much disease and they're gonna age up. And by the time they age up to a vulnerable state, say 65, they've potentially seen the virus 15, 20, 30 times. And that's kind of what happens in natural life. Kids are getting childhood infections repeatedly in early life. This is evolution, like we're programmed to do this. And kids are getting, uh, they're, get, they're building up this big cushion of immunological memory. So then by the time they are 70, and they should be really vulnerable uh, if they were naive to many childhood infections, they've actually already built up this massive amount of immunological memory that's keeping with them for a long time uh, and protecting them. But it's also why pneumococcus is called, you know, old man's best friend. Uh, it kills a lot of people. And, um, uh, and that's because immunity starts to wane with older age. And so how well we can age out of this is a big question. How well we're going to, how well the vaccines will allow the elderly to age out of this. I am very concerned that older people won't be able to really build good immunological memory. So they might just stay in this kind of purgatory where they're never really protected except for the few months after each booster. Um, We'll see. I mean, they'll be much more protected than not having a vaccine, but they won't be 100% protected is what I mean. So okay. I think, you know, it's all about the sort of demographics of aging and, and the immunity that has led for like H1N1 and such for to not be so lethal anymore. Uh, that's an interesting concept, the aging out. But just a real quick follow-up. I don't want to take up too much time. But the um, so if the old one uh, produced a variant, if, sorry, if the Spanish flu produced a variant, what happened to the original strain? It just disappeared? Like, why would that sure. go away, even if there's a less lethal variant? 
you're asking uh, one of the big, uh, uh, amazing, it's one of the most impressive phenomena that happen in biology. I won't go into detail about it, but you should, you should just Google a map of the changes in the lineages of flu strains that happen over the years. They replace each other. They almost have always replaced each other. And one comes around and it just, you know, same way the variants of COVID will replace each other, these flu strains do in the most miraculous of ways where you'll just see this you know, strain has just circulates across the whole globe. It, you know, a lot of people get immune to it. And then a new one pops up and just presses the other one out and the, it, 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 it pushes it aside. The difference now, now we have H3N2 and H1N1, but that's likely because H1N1 came back onto the scene uh, in 2009 and before that as a laboratory release uh, event, it was a mistake. And, um, and so now we have two and they haven't, and actually they've been living uh, together uh, and infecting and, and every year we kind of have those plus flu B, but traditionally we've seen just these massive replacements of flu strains, which has been, and they've been global. Uh, they're so very the, crisp lines. So the, new one, so the new one is less lethal and it immunizes you against the old one and just blocks the old one out. Is that, uh, just real quick, because I know other people are here, but yeah. Yes, that's, that's generally the, the theme, yep. Okay, thank you. Thank you, I'm done. Thank you, uh, Nicole. Uh, next question. Uh, can I just respond to a question in the, in the um, text? And I, I just wanted to go to it. Uh, um, the question was um, Q Health and Lucera, why didn't I list those? Um, Q is hundreds of dollars. Lucera and Illum, these are, these are tests that um, they're not scalable. The, you know, we've dumped hundreds of millions of dollars into these companies and they're not scalable tests. Um, uh, they're not going to make a dent from a public health perspective. We can't reasonably get Q, you know, at, at you know, $300 for the base station or something into needing mul multiple of them. They're also, they have to be done, Q has to be done one at a time because uh, you have this like little base station thing. Um, Lucera is going to be something like $50 and it's still not on the market. Uh, Illum is another, it's an antigen test. It's not, you know, I would say Illum is not as good as a Binex now, but it's, uh, you know, it's got all of this, all of this stuff in it regardless. And so, uh, but it's expensive. And so these are, these are three tests that are expensive and they're not scalable because of the complexity of their, of their components. Whereas a test like this is super scalable for public health. I don't know if that helps, uh, Uh, I haven't heard, but I, she has her hand up for a question as well, so maybe we can get to her directly in a bit, too. Okay. Um, do you want to go ahead? Sure, yeah. Um, thanks for taking the time, Dr. Mina. Um, I am going to ask a question that kind of uh, picks up on what's a little bit, maybe a little bit blunt or, or crude, but uh, why, why should somebody who is vaccinated and maybe maybe has given it you know a couple of months. So let's put us in July. Why should it matter to them, and why should they care about herd immunity or the concept of of it if if they are protected at that stage? They don't have to. That's the cool thing about herd immunity. Um, they're already participating in it, whether they like it or not. Um, and that's the really nice thing about herd immunity. It's um, you don't have to think about it. Uh, you're not. You know, you're you're if you're protected, uh, and and if your vaccine, if it turns out the vaccines really do sufficiently stop transmission to a certain extent to 
uh, even theoretically achieve the herd immunity. Um, the nice thing is it's a natural phenomena. Uh, it is a population-based phenomena that you don't even have to try to participate in and you're participating in it. So um, the average person doesn't even have to be worried about it. You know, the idea, the really nice thing about it is, um, you know, it's, it's great that the public is starting to understand it, but the cool thing about immunity is selfish, well, I, I don't mean this in, in like a negative way, but like selfish behavior. If your selfish behavior is about keeping yourself safe uh, and in so doing means that you have enough immunity so that um, you're no longer able to transmit, um, then a whole lot of selfish behavior becomes a collective positive for the population at large. And so um, uh, it's one of the beautiful things that uh, I think about herd immunity is it, it doesn't require effort as long as, you know, it's one of the nice things if you, if you can incentivize people to get a vaccine for their own health or their family's health, they are naturally participating in population health as well. Okay. I guess, you know, one to follow up on that just a little bit. Um, the, the way I'm thinking about this is let's say that, um, I don't think we know what this will be, but let's say we max out at like 55 or 60% uptake on, on vaccines. Um, and, you know, there are still restrictions in place. Could, will, will vaccinated people have, have a reason to, to believe in those restrictions? Um, not really. Um, but so there's two parts to that question. It's an interesting question because let's say, let's say it's perfect. Let's say you get vaccinated and you don't transmit. Uh, in some ways it doesn't matter then if, you know, if vaccinated people are the ones who aren't caring and they're kind of going out and about the world and they're already vaccinated, they're not going to be damaging, uh, herd immunity or, uh, impacting spread because they're already theoretically protected. Uh, now, if, uh, if they're not fully protected, meaning if people who are vaccinated um, can still spread, and to get to herd immunity, we're really banking on enough people being vaccinated, uh, even if it's not perfect, we're, we're getting like everyone vaccinated and everyone has lower, uh, lower uh, infectiousness as a result of being vaccinated, that too can lead to herd immunity. Um, but if that's the case, then absolutely. I mean, I think it's a real it's a real issue, and I think that that's probably the scenario we're going to be in. Vaccines are not going to completely inhibit spread, not by a long shot. Uh, I think uh, there will it will be it will decrease spread, but especially in older individuals, um, we're going to continue seeing. We've already seen it. We can swab people, and we see that there are viral loads in people, uh, and uh, who have been vaccinated uh, and infected. And so that means is we have to be really careful when we say uh, everyone can go into a nursing home. It doesn't mean that if you're vaccinated that you can't spread to somebody in that nursing home. I wish it did, I really do. And I think it's gonna really reduce the spread for sure. Uh, but what about after five or six or seven or eight months? Uh, is it still after those plasma blasts have collapsed and you don't have a billion cells producing antibodies, you have a hundred cells in your body producing a lot of antibodies each. Maybe you won't have enough antibodies to neutralize everything and you're still gonna get some viral replication happening in your nose. And then you, you're vaccinated and you're not caring about herd immunity and you're not caring about transmission because you yourself are protected from hospitalization. 
that's where things go awry. And, um, you know, I do think that we've been a little bit loose with this language. Uh, in some ways, I think that I think that the administration is recognizing uh, in the US when it comes to policy setting, they're recognizing that like Americans are tired and they wanna give people wins. And so right now there's some wins in terms of saying, look, people have been vaccinated recently. We're gonna relax things for a while. Will that turn out to be the best uh, option in the long run? I think there's gonna be opportunity, maybe even just a few months from now where they say, hey, we're finding out more information. We wanna have people sort of settle down and, and wear masks uh, again or something. Um, and I do think that's probably the direction we will go, where, where we will see vaccinated people, uh, if they're interacting with other vaccinated people, there's very little chance that you might have a lot of ping-ponging spread go on, but uh, neither will go to the hospital. But the concern is when you have this person who's been vaccinated, go to a party, get infected, and then go to a nursing home or whatever it might be and not wear a mask there. That would be a potential bad uh, outcome. I, this this might be a long shot, but just one one more I'll throw on the on, on the log right now on the fire right now is um, uh, do we have a, a sense yet for for what would get us to herd immunity in terms of a, in terms of a number? I know that there's been a lot of kind of back and forth on what that number could could be from a percentage standpoint. Well, it really depends a lot on the variance, and um, I mean the back of the envelope calculation is. You take the R naught of the virus, which not the RT, not the R effective, which it has been. You know, we've been measuring R recently of like 1.3, but that's in the context of lockdowns and masks. So let's say the actual R is something like if you were to not have any mitigation of spread, um, let's say the actual, um, uh, if we go back to total normal behavior, the actual R of the virus, the R naught is like three, let's just say. Uh, the third, the threshold for herd immunity is one minus one over R naught. So one minus one third is kind of the back of the envelope calculation, 67%. That's where Mark Lipsitch got that number, you know, back uh, on uh, when he announced on 60 minutes or something that 40 to 60% or 40 to 70% of the population will get infected with this. That's based on the simple, simple back of the envelope calculation. So that's if we were to go completely back to normal, we might have to get 60, 70%. And that's if protection is perfect. But if protection is not perfect, which we know we don't, I don't think any of us really ever thought it would be perfect after vaccines. The vaccines are working much closer to perfect, much better than we expected from symptomatic disease, but we're still seeing uh, that people do have a virus in their nose afterwards. That means it has to be even higher. But the good thing about herd immunity is it's not like you'd hit something and then, and then everyone's immune. It's a continuum. It's essentially, you might have a growth rate that's very high. And as you get closer and closer to that, it starts the growth rate of an epidemic starts to, to level out. And then it comes down and burns itself out once you pass the threshold. But just getting towards that threshold is still really positive to slow spread, but it just means that the virus isn't gonna be depleted to zero over time. Uh, eventually that will probably happen with this, especially as we keep vaccinating, but, um, but we're probably going to get in this, I think we're going to have a long drawn out gray zone. We're not going to see cases plummet to zero. That's magical thinking uh, for the most part, which is why I really think it's important for us to take a step back as society 
and just ask the question, what do cases mean? How are they going to impact us? Are we going to keep taking cases and monitoring that? Or are we going to start monitoring hospitalizations? And those are the, you know, as we get more and more people vaccinated, maybe that's really the, the key. But then we still are kind of going to be in this unfortunate space where if we're okay with cases, we have to figure out how to keep the elderly and most vulnerable safe. And if they are not retaining immunity very well because you're getting a vaccine at 75, then they might be very vulnerable, uh, even if they've been vaccinated, say, seven months earlier, nine months earlier. And so maybe that's where the boosters are going to really have their greatest benefit. Thank you very much. Uh, next question. Hi. Uh, could you comment a little bit more on what the school testing might look like? And then if you have any advice for administrators at schools, you know, what, you know, what can they do to um, implement um, successful testing strategies with these funds that are now coming? Well, um, every state is really going to be handling uh, school testing very differently. And uh, that's kind of what's happening now. In part, that's because until just two days ago, there hasn't been really good guidance from the CDC um, and nor, nor like a, a really concerted position from the administration. And now, uh, of course, you know, I feel like it's been so long, but it's only March 20th. So it's been two months and the Biden administration is now you know, put and and the the new head of the CDC, they've put these plans in place, which has been great. And so I hope that that's going to switch things. But at the moment, each state has really been thinking about this differently. Um, you know, Shauna Marino, who helps me with a lot of policy, uh, who's on this call, she, she and I have been meeting for uh, uh, you know, I don't know, almost a year, six months or something, with her and me, almost a year, with governors of each different state, senators and Congress people to talk about these issues and everyone is doing it differently. Um, uh, each state has their own HHS or, or some other public health authority that's making decisions. And that does make it a complicated uh, mix. Um, the Biden administration is trying to come up with like a hub and spoke model for PCR laboratory testing uh, to build up the PCR lab labs in the country and start to get the 35 or 40 or 45 million K through eight or K through 12 students uh, testing on a repeat basis. Um, but uh, I don't think that the PCR program is going to work. It's, it's really why we, we need these rapid tests to be authorized um, so that they can actually be used and, and strategy and national strategy can be built around it. Um, that's one of the best things about these tests. They can be, it's something that a, a Biden administration could say, okay, we have 20 million tests per day, 20 million little paper strip tests per day uh, that can be used at a state, you know, state by state by state, and we can actually give a strategy to all of these states because it can be replicated across because these things are dispensed, like they, they can be distributed. Um, but there's barriers right now that are really affecting how states can, can respond to school testing. Um, CLIA waivers are still needed by every school and prescriptions are still needed. So how schools deal with those, some states are being aggressive. Uh, Texas, for example, just said we're giving a blanket CLIA waiver to every uh, to every uh, uh, school for asymptomatic testing. You know that that's that's great. You know, and essentially that's Texas's way of getting around the FDA requirements as a whole state. 
um, probably we should be looking at these requirements and wondering why is Texas having to do something like that? Is there something we could do nationally, maybe with a presidential order to take it off of FDA's plate? You know, they, they don't want to set precedent. FDA is in a pretty tough spot um, because they don't want to set precedent that goes beyond this pandemic. So maybe the president can, can write an order that says, hey, PLEA waivers aren't needed anymore. That would make uh, simplifying testing in schools uh, it would really uh, reduce some of the barriers. Um, you know, essentially, by keeping prescriptions and by keeping CLIA waivers in place, this is like this is asking like why are why are schools asking to be called laboratories? Like schools are not laboratories. We can give them public health screening tools that don't need prescriptions. That would be much better. Um, but until we break those barriers, the short answer to your question is there isn't really a strategy. Um, there's not the tools. We don't have the tools yet uh, available to all Americans and in abundance for schools for the president and the White House to make a strategy that everyone can use. Um, so each state is kind of doing it on their own at the moment. And as, as far as, um, you know, we, is there something where home testing could be taking place now in some place like testing at home testing in, in schools? For yeah, certainly. And, and California, for example, it doesn't have to be at home. Could be, you know, using these, creating really simple ways to use these at schools could also work. Um, California is using these for, for their schools, um, for regular school testing. There is definitely a process that these could be used at home. And, and, you know, if they're distributed much more widely, what I would like to see is, you know, maybe we don't have to get into to, uh, an extended you know, uh, infinite time of using these every few days. Um, one of the most powerful things about these types of tests is um, that we could turn them off and turn them on really quick. If everyone had these in their homes, let's say every household had a bag of 20 of these and you start to see cases pop up in your community or school, you get a text message that says, hey, cases are, we just found in sewage uh, wastewater surveillance that there's COVID again somewhere. Uh, just start using your tests and let's keep R below one and we won't even let the outbreak come back. Those are, those are really smart strategies around these types of tests because we can just put them in everyone's home, tell people to not use them anymore, tell people to use them, have people be able to replenish their supply of tests if they need to very easily. There are ways to do this. And had we done that back in August, we actually could, had every American household had a bag of 20 of these, um, you know, or, or 10, we could have suppressed the outbreaks that we saw this fall and winter. We could have potentially saved uh, or averted 100,000 or more deaths if everyone had these, these tests available. And we could still do that. Um, we just have to distribute the right kinds of tests and get all the big logistics out of the way. And these tests really can do that. And is um, there anything that school districts can do, to, or is it just too big? You know, it's a, it's a larger problem than the individual district. Uh... Um, they can work with their, right now I would say schools have to be, they have to work closely with their um, state officials and their county officials and then their state officials to figure out what's available. Um, it's really state by state and kind of county by county. Um, I know months ago I was working with Mayor Garcetti uh, Los Angeles to try to figure out, can LA do something like this? Uh, um, you know, it, it, I would say, and, and a lot of the discussion has to go to the state and people, schools are generally going to the state first and saying, hey, 
Uh, is there something the state can do uh, to get rid of CLIA waivers and prescriptions, maybe write a blanket prescription for the whole state, which you know, that's what states are being forced to do, which is sort of an abuse of medicine and the purpose of a prescription, but that's where we're at. Uh, so states are maybe doing that and a school has to maybe say, can we do that in our state? Um, and uh, I think that, you know, with these, the, with the new changes that are happening with FDA and CDC this week, um, I think that we're going to start to see them really signal to states like how to get their answers uh, to their questions and what is the strategy. You know, this this week to me is a, I, is hopefully going to be a pivotal week. Um, we're going to see, you know, we have three different um, sectors of government come out pretty hard around this issue this week and. I think over the coming weeks, we will see strategy and we'll see instruction and we'll see policy being built around this to help the schools figure out what to do. Okay. Um, next question. Uh, yeah, I was hitting the wrong mute button, sorry. This is a really good discussion. Um, and it sounds like testing, it's less, it sounds like based on what you're saying that the testing strategy will have to continue to evolve as the disease evolves. Um, so really interesting. But my question had to do with surveillance and the status of surveillance um, and whether there is being, how that, I know it's been problematic in the US um, and just any quick thoughts on that since we're winding up. Sure, um, did you hear my, uh, answer to your other question earlier? Just wanted to yeah, make sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, great. Yeah. Um, so about surveillance, um, surveillance is a huge is a huge issue. Obviously, we need surveillance to really know what's going on. I think that there's a few ways to do surveillance. On the one hand, we need to do genomic surveillance to know what strains exist. So every positive, you know, we should be taking every positive and we should be getting it to a site. You know, if it's, there's ways to do it, even with rapid tests could be great tools for this. If you get a positive on a rapid test, maybe we have programs where you mail it in, just like we mail swabs. Um, and it goes to, you know, every rapid test goes, you know, has a self, you know, has some sort of envelope or something that's like just paid by the government and says, okay, you know, this is a rapid test. It's from somebody who turned positive. This is, you put it in your little biohazard bag and you mail it in, um, just like we're doing with swabs to get swabs processed in laboratories right now. That would be a great way to do genomic surveillance with rapid tests. We could do genomic surveillance with any positive that comes about. The more testing we do, the better the surveillance can be. Um, and the most testing we can do would be if we use these types of tests because they're just so much more scalable. We could go from you know, one or 2 million tests a day to 20 million tests per day. And if we got even just a fraction of those back and sequence, that would be an amazing amount of genomic surveillance to make sure we're keeping an eye on what the variants are doing. Uh, surveillance just to know what the cases are doing is, is also important. And we can do that with, you know, a lot of the critics have said that uh, rapid tests can't be used at home uh, because you won't ever get the values. Well, we're showing in our Citibank study that you can. We're getting almost 100% reporting because we've made it so easy. We've made it part of people's morning that they use a rapid test and they're plugging in their results anyway because they have to attest to not having symptoms to get into work. And, uh, and they're putting into, was my rapid test positive or negative? Um, and so we can still, if we got even just a fraction of that across the country, if we scale these up to 20 million a day, we would have a lot more surveillance. Uh, so surveillance is going to keep being important. I think we're going to see 
Uh, wastewater surveillance is going to keep growing in importance. Uh, I think, especially as cases go down, we're going to want simpler ways for the long haul monitoring, sort of uh, what I call peacetime surveillance. So if it's peacetime, you don't have a lot of cases. You don't want everyone to have to be testing every three days to catch one out of a million people or something. So you start going into peacetime surveillance, which is maybe very passive wastewater surveillance, uh, keep an eye on hospitalizations. And then when you see cases start to tick up again, maybe RNA and the wastewater pick up again, then you can ramp up the, the frequent testing again at the individual level. So there's going to be lots of ways. And I think we have to just change our attitude around surveillance from just something that we're getting, you know, from numbers that we're getting from people going to the hospital or going to, going to, going to the drive-through testing site to something we're very actively doing specifically for surveillance. And the U.S. is really bad at this. The U.S. Is, has never been good at just doing surveillance for surveillance sake for pathogens. Some countries do. Um, they do it quite a bit. We could even use antibody-based testing as a surveillance tool. But the U.S. were very hooked on just using hospitalization data and, and sort of clinical medical test data. But we could do things like the U.K. The U.K. has this big REACT study where they actually go to random selections of people's homes and they just say, hey, can we test you as part of our survey, like a census? And, and they're just kind of re routinely doing that sort of true surveillance testing all the time. Are there any projects that you, any surveillance that it, any that you think is being done that any project that you can point to or surveillance that's being done that's effective now in the US? Um, the wastewater, uh, Nicole just put the Boston wastewater in. Um, I would say we're doing, Sierra surveillance can be very powerful. Uh, Antibody-based surveillance, you keep monitoring, especially if you know people, if you can identify, if you know who the people are that are donating. We could do surveillance with blood donors. Every day, millions of people, well, maybe not millions, every day there's a large number of blood donations that come in. All of those blood donations get evaluated on a routine, regular basis very quickly for antibodies to other things and for HIV and such. We can do surveillance, and so my laboratory is actually doing that. We get tens of thousands of samples a week uh, from all across the country, and we're processing them for immunological uh, uh, signals to be able to monitor this virus in, in real time. So these tests, these, these approaches are coming on board, but they are not, they're not particularly robust in the U.S. and historically. Okay, thank you. Uh, and last question for today, uh, she would like to know, her question is, I'm working on a story regarding children and herd immunity. Every parent I have spoken to said they do not want to vaccinate their children. Would rapid testing school children be a good alternative? Yeah, I think we've, we've probably covered it, but uh, absolutely. I mean, um, if the goal is to stop outbreaks from happening in schools and to keep schools COVID free, Frequent testing and screening testing for the K through eight and K through twelve can be ex extremely important to stop outbreaks from emerging in schools and keep people safe. Uh, I think it's one of the best we've seen. A great examples of it uh, across all of the academic um, colleges and universities in the Northeast and a few others around the country. We have been able to use frequent testing alone essentially, I mean, with some masks and, and you know, other mitigating strategies. But even when there were lots of cases happening in the community, the universities and colleges, which should be the petri dishes for this virus, because you have all these young people 
you know, mingling, uh, they were protected. They were like these little havens with no cases. And that's because of frequent testing. Uh, and so we know that frequent testing can stop outbreaks. We know it can keep places safe. And in the context of low vaccination rates in schools, uh, this is a very good way to make sure that schools are staying safe and staying open, even if there are cases happening in the larger community. Okay, I think that's it for today. Uh, any other final thoughts you'd like to share? Uh, no, I think that's it. Thanks, everyone. This concludes the March 19th press conference.